Hello there, I'm David L. Gray, the author of The Divine Symphony, an escortium to the theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is three minutes on the theology of the Catholic Mass. One thing that I, I did not know before I wrote the Divine Symphony, but I have learned now that I've been teaching the liturgy and, and talking and speaking much more about it, was that one of the many failures of the Catholic Church in rolling out the Norvis Order Rite was that it, she didn't take time to teach Catholics the difference between the essence of the Mass and the delivery method of the Mass. The essence of the Mass is one, and it has never changed throughout history. But the delivery methods of the Mass are many, and they are many, and they have changed throughout the course of history. Yet, because this, this distinction was not taught, many Catholics fell in love with the delivery method rather than the essence, and have now weaponized one delivery method over the other. So it's time that we make a distinction between the essence of a thing and the delivery method of a thing. When it comes to liturgy, whatever that liturgical rite is, whether it's the Norvis Ordo, the, the Byzantine, the Tridentine, also called the traditional Latin Mass, the, the Missa Cantata of the Dominicans, the Ruthenian rite, the Antiochian rite, or, or dozens of others, those are just delivery methods. The essence of the Mass is the memorial sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God commanded, you can read this in Exodus chapter 12, God commanded we, his children, celebrate the Passover meal perpetually, meaning forever. And Jesus Christ fulfilled that command when we at his last Passover meal. We read that Jesus said, do this in Greek, and a minnow of me, that is, in memory of me, that is, in perpetual weight of me. That's the essence of the Mass. A divine revealing communication of God to his people so that they may be like him. In this way, the Mass is purposed to divinize us. That's it. That's the essence. This divine communication through the memorial sacrifice for the purpose of our divinization. Now, how is that essence delivered? Well, it's delivered through various liturgical rites. And we do ourselves harm, and a church harm, when we fall in love with a delivery method rather than the essence itself. Because no one falls in love with a piece of delivery, guy or gal. We may tip them, we may uh, appreciate them, but we don't eat them. We desire what they brought, the food. The food itself is what we seek to consume, not the delivery method. Therefore, as mature Catholics, we have to develop a deep love for the Mass, a deep love for the memorial sacrifice beyond its liturgical rites. For there have been hundreds of delivery methods, hundreds 
of liturgical rites, and Jesus has been present at them all. So it's Jesus we love. It's the memorial sacrifice we love. That's the essence of the Mass. And it's the delivery method that we appreciate. Because the delivery methods are many. But the Mass, the essence, is one. For more information about the meaning, mystery, history of the Catholic Mass, take my book, The Divine Symphony, an excordium on the theology of the Catholic Mass. And you can order it anywhere online where you order books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. It's on Amazon Kindle well if you like digital. Or if you have a favorite Catholic bookstore, just order it there. Thanks for listening. I'm David O. Gray. Blessings to you and to yours. Hello, I'm David O. Gray, the author of The Divine Symphony and Excordium to the Theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is a few minutes on the theology of the Catholic Mass. In my book, The Divine Symphony, one of my major points of emphasis is how the Mass, how the liturgy is a participation in the eternal now of God. That is how time and space cease to be and we are caught up in the sacred space in the eternal nowity of God our Father. And one of the movements to best narrate this transcendent reality is right there at the opening procession where the priests and the ministers process to the holies of holies, to the altar. And all Catholic and Orthodox liturgy of, of our faith have some manner of by which the priests and the ministers process to the altar with some minor uniqueness or more profound exaltation of the mystery through bells, smells, and sounds. One of my favorite processions comes from the Ambrosian Rite, in which the priests and the ministers will stop right there in the middle of the nave, right there in the middle of the procession and stop and sing the Kyrie Eleison 12 times before they continue the procession to the altar. I've been in uh, a number of Catholic churches in which the um, parishioners will physically turn their bodies and watch the priests and the ministers process to the altar as if they're watching a bride process to her groom. Yet beyond the veil, what is taking place here and how does it shape and form our interactions with society after we have been dismissed from the mass? Well, in the eternal now of God, the procession of the mass is a participation in every procession of or every entrance of all the people of God throughout all of salvation history. That is, our procession is not just a participation or a union with the processions of our own liturgical rite or in our own diocese. Rather, it is a participation in every procession of every liturgical rite throughout the world 
throughout history from the beginning of the mass until now we are participating in all those processions when we see our priests and our ministers process down the middle of nave they're joining in with all the people of god throughout the all the masses throughout all of the history of our church they're in union with them and god's eternal now that's what he's seen not only that our participation in this procession in the eternal now of god is also participation in this entire salvation history of all the people of God processing into God's sacred space in the land reserved for them into his promise. Our participation in the Mass in our procession is a participation with, with Moses processing through the Red Sea with the people of God. We're joining in, in that. We're also participating in, in Joshua with the people of God processing, entering into their Holy Land. We're participating in that entrance as well. We're participating in David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he danced with joy when it came, when he entered in, when he processed with that in because it was a joyous occasion. We're participating in Jesus entering in Jerusalem on a donkey and the people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. We are participating in Jesus entering into processing to Calvary with, with Mary and Simon and Cyrene carrying his cross and the people mourned because it was a solemn occasion. As Catholics, one thing that we have to always remember is that the liturgy is always teaching us something. It's always teaching us something. If we, if we pay attention, if we listen, if we observe and see what's going on, if we take it into us, the liturgy is always, always teaching us how to be, how to be who God created us to be, how to act, how to govern ourselves, how to interact in society after we have been dismissed out of the mass. In this regard, what, what is the liturgy teaching us? Well, it's teaching us that life is a procession, that we are always processing to Calvary, that life is full of interests and, and processions. That's all we're doing throughout everyday life. Be, life itself begins with an entrance, with a, a, a birth through the birth canal. We're entering the world through this narrow birth canal, which is symbolized by the narrow nave of the church. We ourselves, we're always processing. We're, we're always on our way. We're always on our way to the entrance of either heaven or hell. One of the, that's, that's where we're processing, one or the other. We're always processing towards one. That's life. And that's what the liturgy is teaching us and what it's trying to prepare us for. That's life. But let's, let us look at the liturgical procession for a moment and see who's there, what's there. But first we see the priest, who ironically is not in the front of the procession, rather he's in the rear because we don't follow the priest. Rather the priest is participating in the ministry of Christ as shepherd. So he's in the rear guiding his sheep from the rear, making sure they don't fall astray so he can bring them back in. Rather, we follow Christ. That's why the crucifix is always in the front. The book of the Gospels, the life of, the, the life of Christ, is high exalted above the minister's head because that book contains the way, the life, and the truth of God our Savior. And this procession is a participation in every procession of every people God throughout all of salvation history. So next time you're at Mass, I'd like you to not um, be thinking about what's coming next or be looking around or, or worried about other things. Rather, I, I would like you to get caught up in the eternal now of God, recognizing that you're participating in all of salvation history 
at this moment as the priests and the ministers are processing imagine yourself in God looking at you in his eternal now in looking at you as he's looking at all of his people throughout all the salvation history processing to the place that he has reserved for them I like you to do that get, get just caught up in the eternal now of God and discover what a rich blessing that is for more information about the theology of the Catholic Mass pick up my book the Divine Symphony. You can order it at any online retailer or support your local Catholic bookstore in order there. Blessings to you and to yours. Hello there, I'm David L. Gray, the author of The Divine Symphony, an excordium to the theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is a few minutes on the theology of the Catholic Mass. Oftentimes, I get asked the question about what is my preference between a traditional Latin rite and a Norvis Order rite. And I've always struggled with that question, honestly, because, well, for two reasons. First, it's a logical fallacy. It, it, it's a logical fallacy because it presents a, the option of a false dilemma, meaning that it posits that there are only two options, the traditional Latin rite and a Norvis Order rite. And that's never really been my Catholic experience. Whenever I had the opportunity, I've always taken advantage of our Catholic faith by trying to participate in many different liturgies as I could in whatever area I was living in. And it was that broad experience of the liturgy of the Eastern and Western rites that gave me really a deep appreciation of all the Catholic liturgies, of the many liturgies that bring the one Jesus Christ. Secondly, I've always struggled with the question just because I know how modern it is. It's a very modern question. Catholics didn't ask this question 500 plus years ago. Liturgy didn't used to be such a narrow question. There was never this false dilemma. Liturgy was just every, if you, if you were a Catholic, if you were traveling throughout the known world, you're making a long journey, and you had the opportunity to visit a different Catholic Mass every Sunday, chances are you experienced a different liturgy every Sunday. Because that's how many different liturgies they were. Many religious orders had their own liturgies. Towns had their own liturgies. Dioceses had their own liturgies. Liturgy used to be just such a bigger thing. Now, when Pope Pius V officially promulgated the Tridentine Rite on July 14, 1570, he made an allowance. He said that liturgies that were 200 years or older could continue to exist, and we still today have many liturgies still with us. But he said that liturgies that were younger than that had to cease because now the new Tridentine Rite would be the official liturgy of the church. And it was. Now, now but for, for some Catholics, this new liturgy was clumsy. It was abbreviated. It was not as beautiful. It was, it was bad form as compared to these older liturgies. But it would become the predominant liturgy of the Catholic Church, the Western Church, until a new, um, clumsy, bad form, not as beautiful, and abbreviated liturgy would take its place, the Norris Order Rite. One thing you notice in my book, The Divine Symphony, is that I go through great effort attempting to demonstrate how all the liturgies of the Church are in both historical and theological continuity with each other. Now, in future videos, I 
I will talk about how the Norris order writes. There is one major area of departure. I also will talk about how the Norris order writes. There are other parts of liturgy that invites abuse. I also invite you to visit my webpage and listen to my podcast where I talk more about this issue, this false dilemma between the traditional Latin rite and Norris order rite, and I talk about it in context of preferences. Now, I know we may not be ready to admit that this is just really about preferences because preferences sound shallow. But really, that's what it is. And there's nothing wrong with having liturgical preferences. We all have them. As long as we can admit that, the liturgy does not care about our preferences. Those things are personal. Our preferences have nothing whatsoever to do with the principal matter and the principal purpose of liturgy. Nor does Jesus Christ care about our liturgical preferences because he comes to all the liturgies. Jesus Christ has one preference. He prefers that we be saved through him. So in regards to the theology of the Mass, I really have nothing of value to add about people's preferences. My, my preference is just that everyone comes to understand the real meaning of the Catholic Mass. But in regards to this issue, this false dilemma, I think there's something deeper here that we need to converse more about. Because there's a great deal of divisiveness about this issue, about this false dilemma between a traditional Latin Rite and Norris Ordo. You have people on Catholics on both sides weaponizing the liturgy against one another. You have so-called, not all, but many traditional Latin Catholics weaponizing the liturgy acting like King James Bible-only Protestants and, and taking the, the missile and hitting these Norvis Order right Catholics over the head with it. And then you have these so-called liberal Catholics weaponizing the liturgy against Jesus Christ himself by making a mockery of the Mass with these so-called LGBT homosexual Masses and these, these Masses that offer very little to no reverence at all for the Divine. And this brings to memory an election here in the United States um, some time ago when there was a gentleman by the name of Barack Obama running for president. And he was talking about people who he thought would never vote for him. And he said they would never vote for him, these people, because they, they cling to their guns and to their religion. Now, he meant this in the pejorative sense, but it's true. There's some truth to what he's saying. That when people feel that their way of life, their tradition, and that their old ways are being threatened, that they're being taken away, they're deep psychological attachment and affection for those things will cause a reaction that, that shows itself in three ways. First, a distrust emerges within this group for the other group who they feel is trying to take away their tradition, their way of life, their old ways. The second phase is isolation from the group that is threatening them. So in, in this new group, in this new Saddle Park community, they can rebuild, they can restore the tradition, the old ways, the way of life that they're used to. The third phase is war with the opposed group because they've realized that these two groups, us and them, cannot mutually coexist. They're always going to be a threat. They're always going to be trying to take away our ways and our traditions and our way of life. We have to go to war. Think of any time in history where, where two groups went to war. This had always been the cycle. One, one group felt threatened by the other. That one group was trying to take away their way of life. They're slaves for example. And they realize, well, we have to isolate ourselves from this group. But then they realize that, no, isolation isn't going to work. They're always going to be trying to threaten our way of life. We have to go to war. It's very important for Catholics right now to understand where we're at in this three-stage process. We are in stage two. There is the isolation. 
there's the building of new communities to restore the tradition, to solidify the old ways. There are two ideological churches existing right now in a universal church, and the two cannot mutually coexist. They're going down two different paths. There is one church that is embracing all the new ways, all the reforms, all these strange, all these new teachings, the teachings of James Martin and people like this. And there's another church that's embracing the dogma, embracing the traditions, solidifying the old ways. These two churches cannot mutually coexist. They're going down two paths and war seems inevitable, but it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus Christ gave the world the mass, not just Catholics. He gave the world the mass, his divine body, his divine blood, so that we all may be one, so that we all may know the Father through him. But we've lost that, that basic understanding of what the Catholic mass is about. And because of that, we've invited Satan into our church to make a mockery of our faith. War perhaps may be inevitable, but the real war is going to be for the real meaning of the Catholic Mass. For more information about the theology of the Catholic Mass, pick up my book, The Divine Symphony, at anywhere you can buy Catholic books online or support your local Catholic bookstore by ordering them. And I'll see you soon. Blessings and peace. Hello there, I'm David L. Gray, the author of The Divine Symphony and Scordium II, The Theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is a few minutes on Theology of the Catholic Mass. One of the most beautiful things about the Catholic liturgy is that it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us uh, to come up with the right things or the acceptable things to say to God. Rather, Holy Mother Church gives us our posture. It gives us our words, our holy words, our holy confessions and our holy prayers. Holy Mother Church gives the priest his postures, his holy words to pray and confess and his words to make an acceptable sacrifice to God. Yet there are a small number of times during liturgy, and for the Norris Order Rite, five times in particular, when we can interject our own words and actions. And it's during those times when we find the most abuse. During the Norris Order Rite, that's the um, introductory comments, the homily, the universal prayers, the rite of peace, and the closing announcements. I'll focus more on some of those other items later, but right now I just want to focus on the rite of peace because historically, has been one of the most abusive rituals in the liturgy of the church. Um, back in the second century, when it was still called a kiss of peace, there were rumors swirling about the empire, about how these Catholics were committing acts of immorality during their masses, during their worship services, and about rumors about men kissing other men's wives a little bit too long. In 1787 AD, St. Athengorius warned that we should give the most exceptional care to guard our bodies against defilement and corruption, saying, if anyone kisses a second time because it gives him pleasure, he sins. A couple of decades later, St. Clement of Alexandria cautioned, love is not to be proved by a kiss, but by a kindly feeling. There are those who do nothing but make churches resound with a kiss, not having love within itself. For this very thing, the shameless use of a kiss which should be mystical, causes foul suspicion and evil rumors. 
the apostle calls the kiss holy. Then 1800 years later, the Catholic Church was still having issues with this ritual. Even though now it was a sign of peace rather than a holy kiss, redemption of sacramentum, commenting on some particular matters to be either be observed or avoided during the most holy Eucharist stated, is appropriate that each one give a sign of peace only to those who are nearest and in a sober manner. The priests may give the sign of peace to the ministers, but always remain within the sanctuary so as not to disturb the celebration. He does likewise if for just reason he wishes to extend the sign of peace to some few of the faithful. As regarding the sign to be exchanged, the manners to be established by the conference of bishops in accordance with the dispositions and customs of the people, and their acts are subject to the recognition of the apostolic see. Now clearly this is the teaching of the church. But it's not uncommon at all to visit some Catholic parishes during Mass, and this ritual takes about 15 to 20 minutes because everyone is walking around acting like they're the mayor glad-handing everyone. You have this person over here just waving at everyone, saying hi. You know, you, you have people walking around and, and giving a sign of peace. You have this guy over here doing the Vulcan sign. I mean, the, the rite of peace in, in some of these parishes are is completely worldly, com completely disturbing, and completely disruptive to what the liturgy is trying to teach and trying to convey. But it's really not the fault of individual Catholics. I mean, we just don't take time to teach the liturgy. We just don't. And, and when priests, those who do know that these are abuses, know that these things are making a mockery to faith, they don't correct it. And, and, and Catholics, we, we don't take time. We've been part of the Mass, been going to the Mass all our lives. We don't think, you know, we think we're doing it right. We, we just do what people are doing around us. We don't take time to invest learning the mystery, the meaning, the theology of the Mass. We, we just don't. We take it for granted. We're arrogant. We think we know. We think we understand. So let's talk about the theology here for a moment to understand what's going on and why is it going on. Prior to the priest or the deacon turning to us and saying, offer each other a sign of peace, prior to that, the priest had offered the Eucharistic prayers through which the offerings had become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in union with those Eucharistic prayers, the priest turns to us with his arms out wide and saying, the peace of the Lord be with you always. There are five times during the liturgy where the priest says, the Lord be with you. But in this instance, one of those five, he has two words. Rather than saying, the Lord be with you, he says, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Now, why does he add these two words, peace and always? Well, again, this prayer is directly connected to his Eucharistic prayers, which he just prayed, of which the offerings became the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which we are about to receive. And so this is a bridge here. And so the words peace and always bespeak of the nature of the most holy sacrament. It is truly peace because the sacrament itself is truly the king of peace. And it is truly always because the sacrament that we receive it, this memorial sacrifice was commanded in Exodus 12 to be an eternal, to be a perpetual, to be an 
always sacrifice. And it is also always eternal because it grants us eternal life. And this is a little bit of what the priest means when he says, the peace of the Lord be with you always at this moment, rather than saying as he had at previous times and what he'll say later, the Lord be with you. Therefore, when we are called to exchange this sign of peace by saying the peace be with you, in the rhythm of the divine symphony of this rhythm of praying, confessing, praying, confessing, what is this? This peace be with you. This is a prayer. So when we go to our brother and sister, again, as the church teaches, nearest to us, and we say, peace be with you, we're praying for them that the Holy Eucharist might find peace within them, that the Holy Eucharist might find a suitable dwelling, that God may come make home with them. This is a deep and profound prayer. This is, this is not a social greeting. This isn't a time to say hi and hello. This is a time to walk around and meander around. This is the one, one of the most powerful prayers that one Christian can say to one another because you're praying that God finds home with you. Peace be with you. Again, the King of Peace, may he find suitable home in you. May the sacrament give you eternal life. May it grant you that salvific healing. You're saying all of that, all that the Holy Eucharist is, all of his gift that's, that, that it bestows, everything, everything, how it enriches and it saves the human person. You're praying to your brother and sister. May that be with you. Peace, true peace, eternal and always. Everything that the, the, the Holy Sacrament is, everything that the Holy Eucharist is, you're praying at the moment for your brother and your sister that it be that to them. That everything that the Holy Eucharist is, that it becomes that to them. And so it's, it's not even a reason to walk around all the Mass and, and giving this prayer to everyone. It, it, is, it doesn't become more efficacious the more a person, if you give it to everyone. So just say it to the person next to you. Say it with reverence and devotion. Mean it. Believe in it. That is going to have that power and that effect. And, and your prayer becomes healing. This, this is intercessory prayer at this point. This isn't, this isn't happy time. This isn't high time. This is a prayer. Peace be with you. May the Holy Eucharist, may Jesus truly be with you now and forever. That's what you're praying at this moment. So next time you're in Mass and this ritual comes, I would like you to pray this prayer with the deep intention of what it truly is. Peace be with you. That all of the promises of the Holy Eucharist comes and dwells upon them and makes home in them. Mean that prayer when you say it. Look in their eyes. Peace, peace be with you. And discover what a rich blessing that is to understand truly what this prayer means. For more information about the Theology of the Catholic Mass, pick up my book, The Divine Symphony and Escortium of the Theology of the Catholic Mass. Pick it up anywhere you can buy books online or buy it at your local Catholic bookstore and support them there. Blessings, shalom to you and to yours. Hello there, I'm David O'Gray. 
the author of the Divine Symphony, an excordium to the theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is a few minutes on the theology of the Catholic Mass. In the previous installment of this series, I addressed one of the three most often times that abuse occurs during the Catholic liturgy, those being the homily, the rite of peace, and the Our Father. In this video, I want to spend a few minutes addressing the latter. It wasn't until 1958 when the laity were even to pray the Our Father prayer during the Mass. Um, it was during that year where the Sacred Congregation for Rites said, you know what, the, the Our Father prayer when it's prayed in Latin is the most fitting preparation to receive the whole Eucharist. So they began to allow the lady to pray it in Latin. But when did the whole Orans pastor with the people praying the Our Father with their arms outstretched, when, when did that creep into the Mass? Well, historians point to a charis, Catholic charismatic movement where Catholics would pray like that. And see, that began to slip, that, that prayer posture began to work its way into the Norris Order Rite. And Catholics during Mass began to pray like that. But this was a big problem because that's how the priest praised their Father. And it was a, an error for the people to imitate the Father as he prays. So in 1997, the church, in a practical provisions document, tried to correct this error, saying, To promote proper identity of various roles in this area, those abuses which are contrary to the provisions of Canon 907 are to be eradicated. In the Eucharistic celebrations, deacons and non-ordained members of the faithful are not to pronounce prayers. For example, especially the Eucharistic prayer with its concluding doxology or any other parts of the liturgy reserved to the celebrant priest. Neither may deacons or non-ordained members of the faithful use gestures or actions which are proper to the same pre-celebrant. It is a grave abuse for any members of the non-ordained faithful to quasi-preside at the Mass while leaving only minimal participation to the priest which is necessary to secure validity. In short, the deacons and the laity are not to do or say anything that the church calls the priest to say and do because to do so puts the validity of the whole mass at risk. We are not the ordained priest. The church gives us our words and our actions and the church gives the priest his words and actions. And they are not the same unless the liturgy tells us to do or say these things together. The bodily posture of the deacon and the laity should reflect, always reflect, a people who are at prayer. No one prays with their hands in their pockets. No one prays leaning over on a rail. I I've never seen anyone at dinner pray, you know, with their hands in their pockets. I, I think we know how to pray. I think maybe there's an issue of not wanting to look the other people like we're trying to be holier than thou. But when you're seriously praying, we have a true intention. You're not worried about what people are, are thinking about you. Our, our attention during the mass should reflect a people who are at prayer but not in prayer in imitation of the priest. He has his prayer gestures and we have ours 
and they should never be the same. Otherwise, we run the risk of making it look like they were quasi presiding with the priests. And by doing so, the validity of the whole mask is at risk. And, and as I always say, the liturgy is always teaching us. If you pay attention to it, if you listen to it, if you observe and see what's going on, the liturgy is always teaching us how to be, how to act, how to be, how to interact with society once we leave the Mass. And it is the case by guiding us our tongues and our bodies by telling us when to stand and when to kneel, what to say, how to say it, how to pray, when to pray, how to, what posture you should have when you pray. What the liturgy overall is teaching us is that our body is not our own and that we were created by God for a purpose, that our bodies and our tongues are purpose to give him praise, to give him glory, and to give him honor with all of our mind, our body, and our soul. That's what the liturgy is teaching us, that we ourselves, our bodies, and everything about us belong to God. And it's teaching us, is this how you ought to be once you leave the Mass? That you or your body is created for a purpose, to give glory and honor to God, to praise Jesus Christ with it. That's what the liturgy is teaching. For more information about the theology of the Catholic Mass, pick up my book, The Divine Symphony, and Excordium to the Theology of the Catholic Mass. You can order it anywhere online, or also you can just buy it at your local Catholic bookstore and support them there. Blessings and shalom to you and to yours. Hello there, I'm David L. Gray, the author of The Divine Symphony, and Excordium to the Theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is a few minutes on the Theology of the Catholic Mass. One thing I do in my book, The Divine Symphony, is try to show my readers how all the liturgies are in both historical and theological continuity with each other. But there is one area where the Novus Ordo Rite um, offers a complete departure from all the older liturgies, and also, in, in fact, a complete departure from monotheistic religion in general. Prior to the promulgation of the New Order Rite, no monotheistic religion ever thought of not worshiping God or praying to God by not facing the source of his divine revelation. For, for example, Jews have always faced the Temple Mount, the Holies of Holies. Muslims have always faced Mecca. Catholics, until the New Order Rite, have always faced, prayed towards, worshiped towards Mount Calvary where Jesus died. So we exclude Protestants from this, this conversation in from orientation of prayer and worship because Protestantism isn't necessarily a religion, it's a protest against a religion. It doesn't exist on its own. It needs for that which it is protesting to exist so that it can exist. So we exclude them from this conversation of, of worship because it's a form of protest against a form of worship. But onto this issue of how we are oriented in prayer physically, it's good to note that over the years, people like um, Pope Benedict XVI and Robert Cardinal Sarah have over the years tried to influence the Universal Church to pray the Norris Ordo Mass at Oriental, that is facing Mount Calvary, 
rather than versus populum that is facing the people. But to this day, um, versus populum still remains a standard in the Western Land Church. In regards to history, it's good, it's good to note that there is nothing about versus populum ever mentioned in any of the um, Vatican II um, council documents. Rather, it was a liturgical renewals after the council where this innovation took place. And according to, again, like people like Pope Benedict XVI and, and Cardinal Sarah, that this innovation took rise because there was a misunderstanding about how the liturgy was being performed at St. Peter's Basilica, where the priest um, seemed appeared to be facing the people, but he's actually facing the east, facing Calvary, because the altar is in the west. But when rightly done, it was not just the priest who faced the Calvary, it was the whole congregation turned that way. And so in this instance of St. Peter's Basilica, the, uh, the people, the congregation, back was to the priest, so to speak. So this versus popular orientation of the Norris Order Rite is a clear innovation of not only Catholic liturgy, but just a monotheistic religion in general. No one has ever done this. But we dare not say that it somehow escapes the providence of God who conforms all of our goofy things to his will. So the role of the theologian, of which we all are to some informal or informal or academic or non-academic degree, is to do this very thing, to search things and determine how do they, how does this thing or this event bespeak of God and how can we understand God better through it. And this is what the theologian does all day, every day, searches things and events to determine where is the love of God in this and how can we better understand his will through this thing or event. And this is why imagination is so important to the science of theology. And it's the case. What is true, what is beautiful about the verses popular orientation is that now the altar of sacrifice serves as the focal point of all our prayers and our petitions. Just as the shrine of the Torah, the synagogue serves as the focal point of Jewish people's attentions and actions. In this way, while the priests and the people and our offerings may not face geographically eastward, all of our lifted up hearts and our hopes are truly turned towards God's seat of revelation on the altar. Such an orientation is symbolized all the greater when a crucifix is placed on top or hanging directly above the altar so that the people will never forget the eternal sacrifice, the perfect sign of God's love, the love that is his very nature and the motive behind why he draws us into communion with him through the Mass. So next time you're in Mass, I encourage you, I really want you to, let your lifted up heart be truly set on Calvary. As you walk up to receive the Holy Eucharist, walk in the feet of Mary as she followed her son to Calvary. As you receive the cup of salvation, imagine yourself being at his side when a soldier pierced him and a fountain of mercy poured from his side. As you kneel back at the pew, imagine yourself being there after the resurrection, after Jesus appeared to his disciples, because he just appeared to you as well. For more information about the theology of the Catholic Mass, pick up my book, The Divine Symphony, an excordium to the theology of the Catholic Mass. You can order it anywhere online or support your local Catholic bookstore and buy it there. Blessings and shalom to you and to yours. Hello there, I'm David L. Gray, the author of The Divine Symphony, an escordium to the theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is a few minutes on the theology.
at a Catholic Mass. One thing I do in my book, The Divine Symphony, is use the construct of the classical symphony orchestra compositions as a method by which to explain the composition of the liturgy of the Catholic Mass. I know this may sound odd, perhaps queer, because now we're living in a day and age where society and culture influenced the church, the church's life. But there was a time when the church's life and its liturgy and the things that we believed influence culture and society. And you can see this expressed in art, in law, in, in a particular case, in the classical symphony orchestra compositions. The great composers like Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, these men were influenced by the liturgy of the Catholic Mass. And you see how it, it plays out, how, how the, the four movements of the classical symphony orchestra are but mere melodies and, or plays on the four movements of the Catholic Mass. A great deal of the beauty, art, and the divine majesty of the liturgy has become lost on too many of us because we fail to be surprised by the liturgy. We have been participating in it for, for so long that everything now is just routine. And we fail to be intentional with what the church is calling us to pray and confess. We fail to understand the theology, the power, the potency, the grace behind our responses. We have become like robots and completely unsurprised. We may be physically present, but spiritually at Mass, we fall into a slumber. Now, one beautiful thing that the great composers borrow from the liturgy that may help you be surprised again at the Catholic Mass is what is called periodic phrasing. It's when one, uh, one group of instruments will propose a question in the form of a melody and uh, another group of instruments will respond back to them. Again, this is called periodic phrasing. It's a very important feature in all classical compositions. And it sort of plays on what we do at Mass with the call and responses. But listen to it here first in Mozart's 40th. Did you hear that back and forth here? I'll, I'll play it again. That's called periodic phrasing in the classical symphony orchestras, and it's taken from the liturgy to mass. When the great composers saw the, the priest and the altar servers and the priests and the people responding back to one another in this call and response, periodic phrasing. Now, in all the older Catholic liturgies, especially those in the East, this call and response, this periodic phrasing, primarily takes place between the priest and the deacon. In the Tridentine rite, it primarily took place between the priest and altar service. In the New Order rite, the New Order rite um, contains perhaps of all our complete tradition of liturgical rites, the highest number of call and responses between the priest and the people. 
But you can see this call and response in many religions before and after Christianity. Um, Protestants in particular, they're famous for their call and responses where the leader or the preacher will, will call his assembly to, to respond back to him, to, to say something or to exchange words with their, the person sitting next to them. But in all these other religions, the, the call and response, the words themselves are human words. The words that really don't really rise above the person who's saying them or into the divine. In contrast, in the Catholic liturgy, this call and response is truly a dialogue with Christ and his people. Because remember, the priest is in persona Christi. He's in the person of Christ. And because he is in persona Christi, he's only speaking what the church has given him say. Just as Christ, when he's with us, told us that he's only speaking the words of his Father. And it's through that dialogue, when Christ was among us, that we dialogue with him, that we exchange words with him. Similarly, now in the Catholic liturgy, the priest who was in persona Christi is only saying the words that the church gives him to say. And it is through that that we dialogue with the priest. We, we exchange this holy dialogue of Christ with his people. This is holy. In this way, this universal dialogue of the church, this periodic phrasing of the divine liturgy becomes an exchange of salvific language, which rises to the heavens, causing the angels to rejoice. Every word that you utter at Mass, that the church has called you to say or to sing, is filled with grace and contributes to the principal purpose of the Mass, which is to divinize you, to conform you to the image of Christ. That is, these are potent words. These are potent exchanges that leads to the type of transformation that only dialogue with God can offer. Now, one of the most consequential call and responses during the Catholic liturgy occurs during the Sorsum Corda, which has been part of the Catholic liturgy since at least the third century. Now, here, after you've made offerings of human possessions and you've made your offerings of those work of human hands, the, the bread and the wine that would become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, now the priest is asking you to make one more offering that is also most like Christ. That is your very self. He says, lift up your hearts to the Lord. Now, heart here is more related to the ancient meaning of heart. The ancients believed that the heart was the very self of the human being, that the heart was your essence, that it was your, your being of what you are, the heart, the very self. The priest is asking you, lift that up to the Lord. This is sacrificial language. The priest is asking you to give all of yourself all that you are, your very being, your very self, lift that up to the Lord. Give all of yourself over to the Lord. Make yourself an offering. Make an offering of yourself to the Lord. Lift yourself up to the Lord. And, and how sad it is at this moment that during the liturgy, when a priest asks us, lift up your hearts to the Lord, we hear Catholics in the mass respond again like robots without any intention the priest says lift up your hearts to the lord and we hear people say we lift them up to the lord no no again this is sacrificial language i'm mean, spiritually it should cause us great pain but also great joy to lift up to make this sacrifice 
of our very self to give ourselves over to the Lord because we're saying that we're at this moment with this this prayer is this source recorder what, what this is is that we're praying and that we're confessing that we are totally dependent upon Christ totally dependent upon him and that's what a lot of liturgy the prayers and confession liturgy are, are leading us to this total dependence upon the Lord which we then we, we see when we receive the Holy Communion that our daily bread that we're saying that we're confessing that we have total reliance on Jesus Christ and this prayer this source and court this call and response here is a confession in that family of prayer you see how deep and meaningful the theology of the Catholic Mass is. I mean, we have Catholics leaving one right to go to another because they're not finding the, the richness and the deepness and the beauty in, in the Novus Order rite, but it's right there. It's in all Catholic liturgical rites. If you, if you just take the time to understand the liturgy, it, it's right there for you to get, really get deep in this thing and just really make your prayer life at the Mass intentional and rich it's right there in every catholic liturgy you don't have to go anywhere but go everywhere and enjoy participate in all the catholic liturgies but understand them get i mean this is why i call my book an excordium it is just an introduction to the theology of the catholic mass but for more information about the theology of the catholic mass pick my book the divine symphony an escortium to the theology of the catholic mass you can buy it online or at any catholic bookstore but until then until next time blessings and shalom to you and to yours hello there i'm david O'Gray, the author of the divine symphony an excordium to the theology of the Catholic Mass. And this is a few minutes on the theology of the Catholic Mass. What are traditions? Traditions are those things, both seen and unseen, that belong to families and cultures that keep them permanently connected to one another throughout all time and space. Traditions are those pieces of fabric that each generation contributes to sewing together so that one generation will be connected to another and one to each other in a successive pattern of love joy and pain. Traditions defy the emergency of time, time that heralds the legacy of death in the passing of once cherished memories of the living. For the, for the Grays, for our family, our traditions are rather simple. We don't have anything fancy or really particularly interesting. On the 4th of July, not even every year, we'll gather together and we'll eat and drink and we'll just tell stories about the living and the dead. Those, that's really the, the death of our family tradition. That's what we do. My wife's family has a really cute, interesting tradition. On December 25th, they'll make a birthday cake. And on the top of that birthday cake, they'll inscribe, Happy Birthday, Jesus Christ. And they'll eat the cake. 
candles and all, um, balloons sometimes even. That's their family tradition. And I tell you the truth, if a strong wind never comes through that house and blows out that candle, I'll faint. What's your family traditions? What traditions do you carry on from one generation to the next, connecting all of them together? In the Catholic sense, the sacraments belong to this definition of tradition. The sacraments are how we pass down the faith from one generation to the next, binding each generation to the other. The sacraments defy the ground rules of temporal space where death reigns and memories are only those things that we can remember if we record them. Rather, the sacraments connect us to that divine space where our eternal Father reigns and who sees what we call our past, our present, and our future in His eternal right now. And for that reason, we cling to the sacraments because they connect us to Him who is all present, all future, and all past. For this reason, the sacraments of the church are always celebrated as family events, times for the family and the community to gather together in peace so that we might share Christ's peace with one another and with those whom we touch. Truly, every generation of God's people have been touched and connected by His love that is communicated through these traditions that we call sacraments. Every part of the liturgy of the memorial sacrifice scenes of passing down tradition, our prayers, confessions, and postures have all been passed down for 2,000 years, from one generation to the next. Each liturgical rite, no matter how new or old, is participating in this mystery of our faith called tradition. Inasmuch as the liturgy of the Mass itself is a tradition, contained within it is the central tradition of our faith, the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. This tradition, called the Passover Memorial Feast, was first instituted by God Himself on the nights before He struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, saying, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord through your generations, you shall observe it as an ordinance forever. The prescriptions of this feast require the people to take a male, unblemished lamb from their flock and slaughter it, roast it, and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They were to take the blood of the lamb and put it on two doorposts of their homes. If they followed this prescription, they would be passed over and their firstborn would not be slaughtered. They would have life until temporal death. Because God called this ordinance permanent, that is eternal, forever, Jesus had to fulfill it. Otherwise, he was not God. Indeed, he fulfills it in this way. He becomes that young, unblemished lamb that was taken from the flock, slaughtered, crucified on a cross. The body of this lamb became our food, and the blood of this lamb became our drink. And he promised 
that whoever ate his body and drank his blood would be passed over eternally, that is, have eternal life. The new commandment to fulfill the old was, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me, or in the Greek, do this in animino of me, that is, in perpetual weight of me. Continuing, he said, this chalice which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Only God can take the very first Passover command and fulfill it in himself by using words such as me and my. Only God can personalize the divine tradition by pointing to himself. Only God can take ownership, personal responsibility of salvation history by pointing to himself and using phrases such as I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the way to life and truth. I am the resurrection. But this is the very reason why we trust that if we remain in, that if we abide in the sacred traditions of this family, that our destination in him who pointed to himself will remain secure. As this is the final installment video in this video series on the Divine Symphony, I hope you understand or appreciate why I waited until the end, until this final video to speak about the sacraments that comes to be during the liturgy of the Mass. Yes, the Holy Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. But no Mass has ever begun. No liturgical rite has ever offered the Eucharistic prayers as the very first thing. And no Mass has ever ended with the communion rite. Now, I know some of you leave after you receive communion, but you do that in error. To the contrary, the Mass is a story. Rather, the Mass is the story of our salvation history. And you're called to participate in it from the beginning to the end. Just as God has called you to participate in this small portion of his salvation history from the beginning of your life until the end. And what the liturgy is doing, what the mass is doing is teaching you how to participate in salvation history. How you participated in, in the mass is how you participated in the world. And so what I've been doing in this video series and more particularly my book, The Divine Symphony and Scordium to Theology of the Mass, is teaching you how to participate in the liturgy of the Mass, how to participate in the Divine Symphony, so that you'll be better enabled to participate in bringing Christ's peace into the cacophony of the world. But for more information about the Theology of the Mass, pick up my book, The Divine Symphony, and it's Scordium to The Theology of the Mass. You can buy it anywhere online at, at your local Catholic bookstore. But until next time, Blessings and shalom to you and to yours.